0: Well, now we turn to our scripture text for this morning, which is Acts 16, 13 through 40. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 40. As we continue our series through uh, the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, I invite you to stand as you arrive there. It's on page 925 of your pew Bible. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman uh, who would come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Do not harm yourself, for we are all are we are all here. And the jailer called for the light and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Amen. You may be seated. What do a wealthy, a wealthy businesswoman, a demon-possessed teenager, and a local prison guard have in common? They all experience the life-changing power of Christ and the gospel. That's what we see in our passage, isn't it? Three very unlikely converts. These people couldn't be more different. Um, and, and we get a profile of each of them and we get to hear of their salvation. And we could have even slowed down and looked at each of these conversions. But I thought it would be helpful to look at, uh, at the, the sweep of this narrative and how it goes from the wealthy businesswoman in Lydia to the demon-possessed teenager uh, and to this local prison guard who we particularly know well um, in our Bible education. Uh, and and as, as we weave through them and see these, this unlikely band come together, we see what they're coming together over is Jesus and his intervention in their life. They all experience the life-changing power of Christ in the gospel. And so can you. This whole chapter is here to show us, to teach us who can be saved, how they can be saved. And by the end of it all, you're just left. I I pray you're left with this sense that, well, if it includes them, and if that's how it works, then I must come to Jesus. Jesus. I want us to look at each of these persons, just a profile of each of them. And as we're going along, you've got a space on the back of your bulletins to even write down basic profile of them. I'm going to move quickly. And then at the end of this sermon, I really want to look back through them and say, what, what can we learn? What can we learn? What are we called to do? What are, how are we called to react to these conversions? Well, notice, first of all, Lydia, and we talked about her last week, didn't we? Let's just put this in context. Uh, Paul and his cohorts, you've got Timothy, you've got Silas, and Luke. Notice we've moved to the, uh, the inclusive pronouns, right? It's saying it's not they went, but we went. So Luke has jumped on the journey now. He's part of this all, and he's seeing it firsthand. The author seeing it firsthand. And he's saying, we were called uh, from Asia over to Macedonia, over to Europe. Remember, they saw this, uh, this vision of a man. He was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they did. But little did Paul know the Macedonian man was actually a woman named Lydia. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course. You have Lydia. And he meets her as she is with a group of, of, of women praying by the riverside in Philippi. There are not even 10 Jewish men there who believe in the, the one God of the Bible. Um, and so... What you find is not a synagogue meeting, but a group of women that are praying by the rivers. And Lydia's amongst them. Now let's do a quick profile of Lydia. Who is she? Well, she's wealthy. How do we know that? Well, she was a, a seller of a fine purple cloth. The high-end clothing line of the ancient world. Because in order to have this purple dye to make clothes purple... In that time, you had to, to extract it from these sea creatures uh, in, uh, under the water. And so it was all this work. And so, so she had a lot of money. She was wealthy. And in fact, if we could put her somewhere um, you know, in the scope of Dayton, I, I, I'd venture to say that she would be owning a high-end clothing boutique um, on Far Hills Avenue right next to Dorothy Lane Market. You know the strip I'm talking about? And uh, she would be the spot that people would come to whenever they're in Dayton. Uh, If you have celebrities passing through Dayton, they'd want to stop there because she has the clothes that everyone's talking about. I I know, I don't know many celebrities that would stop through Dayton. But if they did, (laughs) that's where Lydia would be. She's wealthy, she's also notable. You know this because out of these three converts, she's the only one that her name is explicitly used. I think that's because she was very well known in Philippi, uh, where her riches, her status, um, her place in the community had gotten her name to be uh, very memorable. And she's also religious. She has this, you know, conservative Jewish bent uh, to, her, to her, um, her life. And so uh, you see her. On a Sabbath day, praying to God, she finds the God of the Bible interesting and useful. But I want to note something: wealthy, notable, religious isn't enough. There's one thing that that Lydia lacks. She lacks a knowledge of Jesus, and so when she hears Paul speaking of this Savior who came to die for sins, who came in, uh, uh, to, to bring to fulfillment all that's prophesied in the Old Testament, Lydia's ears perk up and she starts to realize that the God that she found to be useful is actually the God who is beautiful in the gospel. And her heart is opened, not by her own interest, but by, by God's Holy Spirit so that she says, yes, yes, I want this, I need this, give me Jesus. And so here you have the wealthy, notable religious woman uh, falling upon her knees, uh, believing in Jesus by faith, and and by the way, bringing her whole household to be baptized. Isn't that amazing? And I'd venture to say that the first application for us today is that if you're here and you would fit something of this category, right? Um, Maybe you have conservative values. It's not enough. Maybe you have a kind of wealth that you're generous with. It's not enough. Maybe you come to church every Sunday, you're you're interested in religion, it's not enough. Why? Because none of that uh, could possibly stack up. It's 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 Jesus alone that our hearts need. Not some social kind of performance fitting into some social class. It's it's Christ in our need of Him. So I'd plea with you if, if you're here and you're saying, I'm kind of like Lydia, aren't I? Go the next step. Be like Lydia who who embraces Christ in the gospel. Because God is not just useful to her. He becomes beautiful to her in Christ. So you have Lydia. And that's the first profile. But I want you to see that we suddenly shift after her household is baptized. And we shift to a very different person. And this person is, of course, the slave girl. The demon-possessed slave girl. And if we were to put her somewhere in the map of Dayton, we'd, we'd move from, uh, from Far Hills Avenue and we'd drive over to the bus stops on the east end, far east end of Dayton. And you'd find there the drug-addicted, prostituted teenager. And that's kind of the realm we're talking about now. You understand what I mean? Now, what you need to understand about this girl in the the scriptures, this demon-possessed girl, is she is, her whole life is defined by one word, bondage, bondage. She's, in fact, under two layers of bondage. The first is a spiritual bondage. She's possessed by Satan himself, by a demon. He has his clutches over her soul. In fact, the Greek literally says she had a python spirit I don't really know what that means, but the picture of a python is snake-like, it's Satan-like, and, and you can almost picture it wrapping around her heart, wrapping around her life, and it's got her in, her, in, in, her, in its clutches. You, you have the image there of a python wrapped around her heart, and she does its bidding. But then she's socially in bondage, right? You have the spiritual bondage, and now you see the social layer because there's men in the city who own her because she's a slave, and they found that this python spirit is quite beneficial to their business scheme, right? By the power of Satan, this woman can can speak what is yet to come. She, She has a spirit of divination. She can say what is the future, and she... Starts to make them a lot of money through this, right? $50 and we'll tell you your future. And so these, are, these men are like spiritual pimps that are using her and benefiting, profiting from her. And they have her in, in their clutches too. They don't want a single thing to change. And so here she is and she starts crying out, hey, look at these guys. They come from the most high God. Uh, they they speak the message of salvation and she's following them and saying this over and over again. And you know, what's interesting is what she's saying is true. So why does Paul get annoyed? I think he gets annoyed because he looks at her, he sees what she's saying is true and yet she's still in utter bondage. And so he realizes that somehow Satan is, is making use of what she's saying to try to infiltrate the gospel, to infiltrate his mission. And so he says, enough of this. Let's free her from this evil bondage and let's have her speak the truth apart from it. And, and he cast this demon out of her. And for the first time and who knows how long she feels that python release its grip over her heart, the, the, the bondage that is spiritually over her is released and she opens her heart. It does not say here in the scriptures that she believes the gospel, but I don't see why we wouldn't be inclined to that view because she's right in the middle of two other people who did. Spiritual freedom. And then social freedom, because now these, these uh, slaveholders have lost their means of making money. Isn't that what the gospel does? I just want to pause and just speak very boldly here that the gospel is transformative. It transforms society. It, first of all, notice what the gospel does. It starts, it changes you. It makes you a different person. It frees you from addictions. It frees you from fear that people profit off of. And then the next thing it starts to do is starts to, to take away from oppressors the very things that they are benefiting from. So that when the gospel comes to the drug addict and says, turn away from this, this is not life, Christ is. And the drug addict turns and starts to to turn away from uh, from that lifestyle to a lifestyle of following Jesus and sober-mindedness, then what starts to happen? Well, the dealers lose profit and they start to get very angry. How about when the pregnant woman decides to keep her baby outside of the abortion clinic? The abortion doctors don't like that because someone's losing money. How about the young man who's freed from his addiction to explicit online images? Well, when he turns away from those images, when when he stops craving them, when he stops looking them up, the adult entertainment industry loses money. The gospel comes with transformative power to change society. And there are people who do not like that. They will push back, they will fight back. So the first thing I want you to hear uh, as, as you're hearing this is, friends, there is power in the gospel from freedom from your deepest addictions and slaveries. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning, whatever it is that has a python grip around your heart can be released and that slowly but surely Even in dramatic ways, right away, you can start to walk in the power and freedom of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that that then starts to change society in such a way that people start to notice that this is a good thing and those who are oppressors start to punch back? Well, that's what happens to Paul and his cohorts here. They get thrown in prison. Why? Because they freed a woman from her slavery. And so they end up in jail. That's ridiculous. Of course it is. Of course it is. But then we get the gospel shared with this jailer. And so I want you to move with me from Lydia, the wealthy, noble, religious woman, um, uh, and the slave girl, to the jailer. And if Lydia was on on Far Far Hills Avenue um, selling her her highline clothing boutique, if uh, the slave girl is on the bus stops of the east end of Dayton, Then you could imagine that this jailer is the Dayton uh, PD officer who's really good at his job, but he has little time for religion. He cares about duty and honor, and that's the world he lives in. But religious talk, talk about Jesus, talk about a gospel? Just doesn't, doesn't need that. Notice out of these three, at first, he's the least interested. He's not calling out, salvation's here with these men. He's also not, his ears aren't perking up. He's just doing his job, standing guard. That's the overarching story of his life. Duty, honor, commitment, serving Rome. Until he sees something. And and notice it, sometimes, friends, the gospel, we can share it with people all we want, but sometimes they have to see it visibly in our lives for it to really click. By the power of the spirit. And notice what this jailer sees. That starts to kind of challenge the narrative of his life. He sees Paul and his companions. Praying and singing hymns. In their jail cells. Picture that for a moment. They've just been beat. Uh, pretty severely. They have wounds that are oozing with blood. And bodily fluids. And Here's the jailer, and he sees them, and they're sitting there with their wounds, bound in chains, and they say, let's sing. Let's sing to our God. Let's pray that he would use even this instance, that the gospel would advance. And that's what they start doing. They start singing, and they start praying, and everyone else who's there in Philippi, in the Philippian jail, they start listening in. What is this? This is different. That's the first thing that the jailer sees and hears. And then an earthquake rocks the landscape and the doors open. And in the dark of night, everyone's um, bonds are untied. Suddenly, by some miraculous intervention. And in that moment, his whole worldview turns in on itself. And he realizes, duty, honor, commitment, that's all there is. I've got to take my own life. In fact, it was the law. According to Justinian law, if a jailer failed in his duties, he would be executed. So he says, I'm going to make this quick. I'm going to to honor my failure by falling on my own sword. This is all that life is. But then he hears a word coming out of the darkness. Don't do it. We're still here. And in those words and in that sight, what he sees is disciples paying evil with good, repaying evil with good. Because you see, if Paul and his cohorts leave, this man dies. Either by his own sword or by the the executioner's sword. So they stay. Why? Because they know Jesus. Because they know a Savior who repaid evil with good. Because they know a Savior who suffered and died for them. So that now they can turn around and say, don't take your life. There's one who already gave his life for you. His name is Jesus. And in this moment, he's so overwhelmed. He realizes that his worldview isn't enough. That honor and duty are good things. But they have something that he needs. They have a storyline to their lives that he's missing. And he says, If I have what they have, then I have a hope that can endure through tribulation, that can float in the midst of suffering. And so he believes in Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he does. He does. He's quickly baptized. gospel comes to his house that day. Three different profiles. Do you hear them? Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer. Here's my question for you. What does this mean for us? Here's the first thing it means for us today. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. You know, there was a saying that uh, Paul would have known in his training as as a Pharisee growing up. Thank God that I'm not a woman. Thank God that I'm not a slave. Thank God that I'm not a Gentile. He would have known that from his earliest days. Who were the first three people that are saved by the Lord as he preaches the gospel in Europe? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Saved in very different ways, but by the same working of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in the gospel. And so if you're here and you're thinking, you know, the gospel just not for me. This is interesting. I'm glad I, I didn't, you know, I'm taking note of this stuff. This is what Christians are like. If you're here and you're saying, you know, it's good to be around people who, who seem to care about morals. But you know what? The gospel, it's not for me. I'm going to let that pass today. Maybe later. I want you to hear that the gospel is certainly for you. Each of these people are very different, different races, different genders, different um, uh, dif- different lifestyles from different parts of town. And it doesn't matter. The same gospel comes to each of them and it appeals to their hearts in different ways by the power of the Spirit. So if you're here today, what, what, what I want you to hear is that the gospel is certainly for you. The gospel is for everyone. We should be sharing the gospel with everyone in ways that we can. I wonder if we sometimes do buy into that myth that, oh man, yeah, that girl in the bus stop, she's just not, she's, she's not even mentally going to be able to process what I'm saying. So, a woman with a python spirit wrapped around her heart was freed of that spirit by the power of the gospel. Powerful word that penetrated by the spirit of the living God. Stop picking and choosing who can receive the gospel. It is for everyone. But let me say something else here. The gospel is for everyone who believes. And that means that the gospel is for you. If you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Philippian jailer asked an excellent, excellent question. What must I do to be saved? You know, that's the question of a man who has 30 seconds before he takes his own life. You ever been talking to someone and they say, answer the hardest question in the world and you have 30 seconds. I've met a lot of people like that. And we, we live in an age with a short attention span. Well, this guy has 30 seconds before, you know, the, the alarm sound and someone comes running and, and, and the executioner has him. And he's, he's going to take his own life before that. What would you say to someone if you had 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds to share the gospel. Well, I think the answer here is about as good as it gets. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What was that, three seconds? Excellent response. Why is it so excellent? Because it cuts right at the heart of what salvation's all about. He doesn't say, all right, first step, you're going to get baptized. Second step, you know, you're going to do this and that. And then you're going to come to the Lord's Supper. All this is just this long process of salvation. He says, say, hey, by the way, first thing you want to do, you're going to want to go and show the city of Philippi that you're working really hard and you've earned your place to be a Christian. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, trust in Jesus. And then we'll see how the rest flows out. The moment you trust in Jesus, confess him as your Lord and Savior, you're saved for, for eternity. Here's what this brief, concise answer means. Trust in Jesus for what he did for you. Notice that. His answer, the question, what must I do to be saved? He's looking for some sort of an action. But the action itself is not one that leaves us on the constant treadmill of spiritual improvement and works. The answer is, here's the only action. Trust in what Jesus did for you. He died on the cross for sinners like you. He took the penalty that your sins deserve and he took took them upon his very life, his sinless life. Trust in the life that Jesus lived that you failed to live. He's a sinless person. He lived the life that we failed to live. So trust in him. Grab a hold of his righteousness. That's all you must do to be saved. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? What must you do to be saved? Believe in Christ. That's the message to Lydia, to the slave girl, to the jailer, and it's the message to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fruit of salvation that we see in these three. Oh, that we would know for sure sure that we are with them. Lord, those here who have trusted Jesus... We pray that you would console us with this passage. That it would be a balm to us and we would say, Lord, thank you for for guiding my heart, for opening my heart to trust in a Savior. Oh, that I would honor him with my life. Lord, those here who have not trusted in, in the Savior, pray that salvation would come this very hour trust in the savior would be found the belief in his name and that many would be saying this very hour nothing in my hands i bring simply to christ's cross i claim for he did everything that was necessary for my salvation so that i might now live to his glory we pray this all in jesus name amen